Good morning, everybody. I uh, appreciated that last song greatly. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, something I think about more and more about our motivation for uh, having an eternal life is I think when we grow in our relationship with God, we, we grow in appreciating him and grow in our jealousy for him to receive praise, praise that is due, praise that is fitting. And I think a part of our motivation to get to heaven is heaven is where praise will be unrestricted and unending. And I think for those that love God, um, there's nearly no greater motivation than, than that to be with God, to be in a place where praise is without boundary, it's, it's without any obstacle, there'll be no weariness, no distraction, um, and where praise will be unending. God will finally in heaven receive suitable praise. So in Acts 8 through 12, um, since the beginning of the year, I've been teaching um, once in a while on uh, this section of the book of Acts where we see portraits of Jesus' dominion and more specific examples of people than beforehand. Um, we see the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapters 1 through 7. But verse, chapters 8 through 12, as the gospel spreads to the regions of Judea and Samaria, uh, we see a lot of specific people being impacted by the gospel. Chapter 8, we saw Simon, who was a magician, being converted. Uh, at the end of the chapter, we saw an Ethiopian eunuch who responded to the gospel. Chapter 9, we see Saul, who was the uh, main persecutor of the church and instigator of persecution against the church. He was converted. And we see at the end of the chapter here the healing of Aeneas and Tabitha. Uh, in chapter 10, we'll see Cornelius. We'll see the church at Antioch, specifically at the end of chapter 11. And in chapter 12, we see Peter as he's freed from prison when Herod wanted to uh, kill him as he did the Apostle James. Quick note here, um, there's Spanish on the board. We've had a Spanish-speaking individual visiting with the church here regularly. Um, I was expecting him here today, but didn't hear from him this morning, unfortunately. And so, where's Miguel? Oh, Miguel, hola. Okay, so it's a good thing that it's on the board. Uh, so I do have something actually on the outline I want to say to Miguel um, really quick. Thank you for pointing that out, Scott. Uh, so Miguel, uh, los acontecimientos del libro de los hechos tienen lugar despius de que Jesús haya vivido, muerto, resucitado de entre los muertos y ascendido para reiner en la cielo para siempre. A partir del capítulo 2 de los hechos, el evangelio se extendi, ex, extiende rápidamente desde Jerusalén a todas las regiones circundantes. Pablo acaba de convertirse uh, y ahora volvemos a Pedro, Pedro cuando viaja al oeste oeste de Jerusalén para predicar el evangelio y curar a la gente. Uh, so for everyone, I don't speak Spanish, which is why that's super broken and awkward, uh, but I try to use some translation applications to translate some things that I can say to give some framework to the lesson since there's really nothing that'll be Spanish except what's on the board, so I appreciate your patience with that. Uh, but where we've been in the book of Acts, the gospel started its spread in Jerusalem. So chapter 1, Jesus spends his final days with the disciples, especially his apostles. 
And he tells them that they will be his witnesses starting in Jerusalem and then, again, the regions of Judea and Samaria, which is where we are, and then to the ends of the earth. And that gives the book of Acts a general structure. Chapters 1 through 7 is the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. After Stephen, the first martyr, is killed because of preaching the gospel, that again instigates a persecution that seems to be led by Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. And so the disciples spread around the regions of Judea and Samaria, and what seemed to be a deterrence actually ends up being a furtherance for the gospel as disciples begin spreading it all over the regions. And then after chapter 12, we'll see the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Acts. Uh, Lord willing, next year, I'll start preaching more on the Apostle Paul's preaching trips. And that's where the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth from, end of the year from there. In this section of the book of Acts, we're going to see Peter. And Peter is going to be traveling westward to the regions of Lydda and Joppa. Lydda is the bottom arrow. It's northwest of Jerusalem a little ways. And then Joppa is a coastal town. Uh, far west by the Mediterranean Sea, just so you have some regional framework for what's happening and where it is. Uh, and in the scripture reading, you may have noticed that Peter went to places where there are already disciples. So Peter isn't bringing the gospel uh, for the first time to these regions, but it's already spread. There's already disciple in, disciples in these regions. And as the gospel is spreading, the church is thriving, increasing, Peter travels again to Lydda and Joppa, where he finds these two individuals. Before that, I want to read verse 31 again and spend just a moment kind of just appreciating some points from the condition of the church at this time, the church at large and the local churches that would have been through these regions. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. A theme we see in the book of Acts is the church is constantly increasing. God designed the church to look like this, that it would have peace, that it would be built up, and that Christians everywhere in every church would be going on or walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and that it would increase in that way. So just a word about some of these things. The church was enjoying peace. Peace equips us to be built up. I think a part of the emphasis here is that Paul, who was persecuting the church very aggressively, he was converted, which seems to have given some leniency and respite from the intensity of the persecution that had been happening, and that would have given it peace. But besides outward things that may happen to Christians, ultimately God has designed Christians to live in peace with each other and find peace with each other and in our relationship with him. And then I think that brings us to the other points about the condition of the church, that they were going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were growing. They were growing in their reverence for God, their regard for the Lord, their respect for his word and their obedience to his commands. They were growing in their caution and their convictions and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They weren't finding comfort in physical circumstances in themselves and physical prosperity or physical security, but rather they were finding comfort in God's promises. They were learning to find comfort in the hope that's promised in Jesus and the resurrection. They would be finding comfort through prayer instead of circumstance. And instead of finding comfort in what is temporary or what is present, they were finding comfort instead in what was eternal. And I think it implies the fact that they were still going through difficulties. Why would you need to seek comfort out unless you're going through some kind of conflict. 
And so the fact that they were enjoying peace again, I don't think is a complete absence of conflict, but rather the fact that they were learning to find comfort in the Holy Spirit was a signal. They were still going through conflict and difficulties, but they were instead growing in the comfort of the Holy Spirit while enduring these things. Have you noticed that in the epistles written to churches, there is very little that's said about outreach to the lost? So for instance, when we read, when we read Romans, there, there might be some like implications, but there are very few instructions about evangelism with the epistles written to Christians. Does that mean that evangelism isn't present in those, in those letters? I would argue no. That based on verse 31 and many other verses we have similar to this, that when the church locally is as it should be, when God's people are living as they ought to live, and when we love each other as we ought to love, love one another, what that does is it causes the church to have a spiritually thriving environment that is conducive to reaching out to the lost. God wants the lost to be brought into a rooted and stable spiritual environment. If the church is divided, worldly-minded, shallow, and undevoted, that's not an environment conducive for people with very broken lives who need a great deal of help and instruction and love and patience and mercy and kindness. When God's people are as they ought to be, it is an environment suitable for the broken, the weary, the distressed, and the heavy laden to come in and find refuge and to find instruction and learning and love. So that brings us again to Peter traveling to Joppa and Lydda. I'm going to go ahead and read 32 through 43 before we make some more points about these passages. Verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds and kindness, deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And, but Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So there's some similarities in these miraculous events that we're going to deal with to kind of tie it together. Um, but starting with Aeneas, Peter goes to Lydda, and he finds this man who had been paralyzed for eight years. So I don't know if like he got into an accident of some sort or suffered some illness, but suffice it to say, he hadn't been paralyzed his whole life, but for eight years he had been paralyzed and bedridden. And when Peter finds him, there's just really one simple point I want to make with what Peter did with Aeneas. He told him to do something that was impossible. You notice he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Could Aeneas have done that on his own? 
Did he have any ability to fulfill that instruction? And we're going to deal with that with Tabitha and making tab, Tabitha, not Tabitha, Tabitha at uh, the next part of the lesson and make an application at the end of the lesson. But again, Peter commanded Aeneas to do something impossible, and he was able to do it. Not because he had that ability, not because he found strength in himself, but because Jesus had the power through Peter's words, spoken by Jesus' authority, to equip Aeneas to do the impossible. And in verse 35, everybody in these regions saw this miracle. It was very public. It was very evident. And they turned to the Lord was the effect of this. Then Peter goes down to Joppa, and there was a disciple named Tabitha there. And something noteworthy is said about Tabitha. So this isn't somebody who had yet to receive the gospel and believe it. Notice she's called the disciple. And not only was she a disciple, she was quite the standout disciple. It's mentioned that she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. And it kind of seems like this idea of, it's like it was overflowing out of her life. That this is what defined her as she was constant in these deeds of kindness and charity. And there's something interesting about this. So she falls falls sick, she dies. And when she dies, this is the only miracle in the book of Acts that involves resurrection, where the resurrection is actually requested. And I could be wrong about this, but I think there's actually only one other resurrection that's requested in the Bible, and that's in 2 Kings, where there was a Shunammite woman. Elisha promised she would have a son, and it was a promise made by God to her. Her son died years later, and she ran to Elisha. And she doesn't like specifically request that, she, that he raise her son back, but it seems like that's the idea, is she's urging him to come and restore life back to her son. That's the only thing similar to this, whereas this is requested a lot more clearly. And so there's, there's something significant about the fact that these disciples had confidence that if Peter came to them, he would be able to restore life back to Tabitha. I want you to think about that in relation to Lazarus. Do you remember John chapter 11? Even when Jesus himself came to Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus was dead, they struggled to understand that Jesus could actually restore Lazarus back to life. And when he was implying this, they acknowledged, well, we know Lazarus is going to raise again in the resurrection on the last day. But again, Jesus was making the point that he is the resurrection and the life. And that his ability to restore life isn't limited to who's living right now. But even those who have been dead, he is able to raise to life. So Peter, the disciples acknowledging Peter as an apostle, had confidence that he could come and restore Tabitha back to life. Notice verse 39. So I'd missed this for a while. Maybe you didn't. It might be just something I read into it for some reason. I do that a lot with things and discover simple things. But Tabitha herself is not called a widow. You know, for a while, I think Tabitha was included with the widows. Maybe I thought that was implied because they're there showing garments. But I, what I think is being implied is why did they want Tabitha to come back to life? Who was she focusing her help on? Widows. She had made them garments and tunics. And she was being very active in helping people that God is particularly concerned because of their need, particularly concerned of because of their need. And so she was offering a service that was very vital to the disciples at that time. And again, I think that's a big part of why they were urgently wanting Peter to come and raise her from the dead. She was caring for those who had a genuine need, and she had the ability to extend that care. So Peter does this a lot like Jesus did in his ministry when he would raise people from the dead, besides Lazarus, which was very public. 
He sent them all out, knelt down and prayed. It was not by his own ability. Simply tells her to arise. She opened her eyes and he presented her back alive. So just like Aeneas, obviously could Tabitha have obeyed this instruction on her own? Did she have any strength in her body or any ability at all? Now, when he told her to arise, that she could just do that. No, it was dependent on God's miraculous ability to give her that ability to open her eyes and be raised up. And so God, through Peter, was able to do the impossible with Tabitha. And I think this becomes a really important illustration of our relationship with God that I think has a lot to do with the reason why in 35 and 42, the people who witnessed these things turned to the Lord. And I think it's not just that they were looking for similar miracles, but they saw the lesson that was implied about the nature of the gospel because of these things. And so the nature of these miracles caused many people, again, to turn to the Lord. I want to say something really quick about the nature of these miracles in contrast to what people claim are miracles today. These miracles were immediate and not gradual. So I've talked to a lot of people who believe that there are miracles that happen today the same way as they do in the Bible times. And I don't want to limit God, but we've talked before about how in the book of Acts, miracles in terms of this kind of healing is very carefully tied to the apostles and the people the apostles laid hands on. And the nature of these miracles were immediate and not gradual. Because I've seen people say, you know, they laid their hands on me and I started a process of healing. That's never how it works in the Bible. It's always immediate. And it's every time, not sometimes. So another problem with modern miracles is, you know, maybe sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's very unpredictable. Whereas in the Bible, not only is it immediate, it's, it's every time they would lay their hands on people. The only time we have it not working is when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples were trying to cast out a demon out of a boy and were not able to. From the book of Acts and forward, we never see a situation like that ever again. We always see that with the apostles and the, those they lay their hands on, they were reliably consistent every time. Thirdly, they were obvious, not invisible. So it wasn't just that someone had like pain in a part of their body or a little back pain that they were dealing with. It was something that was extreme. It was public paralysis. People that were known in the community as having no ability to walk. People who were dead, and it was obvious that they were dead. And when the apostles laid hands on them, they were immediately and obviously healed. And there was no other explanation except for the fact that something very obviously miraculous had happened. These miracles could be investigated and upon investigation, it was undeniable that something otherworldly and unnatural and miraculous had been done to cause the healing in these individuals. When the gospel's power is evident in this way, it draws people to it. Because the gospel is not just an obligation of instructions. It's not just that Jewish people had to change their mind about how worship ought to be conducted now that they're Christians. There is a power being emphasized in the gospel that was not available in this way as it was and is now. There was a reality and a realization that was being emphasized in these miracles. The reality that Jesus is still alive and working through his message and his people. That Peter was a direct ambassador 
not just of information preached, but of a person who is still living and living in full power. And there was a realization that when the gospel is made clear in these ways, there's no problem that we have that cannot be resolved by the power of the gospel. That if Jesus is living and ruling, and if, if his power is working through these people in these ways, what that, what that means is my brokenness is not too big for the gospel. That my problems, my burdens, my sin are not too big of a problem for Jesus and what he can do through the teaching of his message. Lastly, about these miracles. I would argue again that because the apostles died in the first century and those they laid hands on would shortly die afterwards, that miracles like this, meaning miraculous healing when laying on the hands, things like that, that those things are just not around like they used to be. So is the message less powerful? Is it less exciting? Is God offering less of a change or less of an impact on our lives? And I would argue, no, that God through history, he shows his power to do certain things. And when those, when those certain things are withheld, it's to emphasize the greater thing. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, what they did didn't continue on forever. And what the apostles did, what Jesus did miraculously did not continue on forever. But it is an illustration, a sign of something that would continue on, something greater that we would have much more trouble to understand and grasp if not for seeing the power illustrated in these ways. The idea again is this, is God withholds the lesser to emphasize the greater. God withholds the lesser things, the lesser healing, to emphasize the greater healing. When Aeneas was healed from paralysis, could he get in an accident again and just go right back to being paralyzed? When Tabitha rose from the dead, was she going to die again? But when we're healed by the power of the gospel and abide in eternal life, is that a power that will ever wane or be undone by any worldly thing? And so God withholds the lesser to emphasize the greater. He signals the greater through the things that are lesser. So that brings us to some applications that I want to make from the lesson. But I think something that's signaled through the healing of Dorcas and Aeneas and the other people who are healed as well, there's something holistic about this. That everything in the gospel, everything, is centralized and rooted in God's power to heal, restore, and conquer. And I want to look at Romans 8, uh, again, to look at these things. We, with the last lesson we did in Acts with Saul and his conversion, we looked at Acts 8 uh, to make a couple points with the power of the gospel in Saul's life. And I want to look back at Romans 8 to look further at some things that I think are illustrated from this section of chapter 9 as well. And again, everything in the gospel is centralized on and rooted in God's power to heal, restore, and conquer. Look at verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, there's two ways to take this in verse 11. The first way, I think, is that in the resurrection, God will glorify and restore our physical bodies. That our bodies will be glorified with Jesus, what dies will be risen again. And so there's a sense where if we are faithful to God, that God will glorify and restore and give life to our mortal bodies. Our body will be redeemed in that way. But I think there's also a present nature to this promise. 
that as we obey the Lord, as we invest our faith in him, he makes us more and more like Jesus and gives in us greater eternal life and greater life that unifies us more completely with eternal life, that we experience the life to come through experiencing it now as we serve him, as we obey him, as we invest in him. And I think that's what we see also at the end of chapter 8, verse 28 through 37. 28 through 37. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I think this is the key to understanding that we don't need to be intimidated by the enormity of any problem in our life, but that rather we can be emboldened when we're confronted with obstacles, weaknesses, addictive sins, enslaving sins, that instead of being intimidated by the enormity of our problems, we can put our confidence very safely that there is no mountain too tall, too wide, too long-standing, that God's power cannot overcome it. Was Aeneas's paralysis too long-standing of a problem that the power of the gospel could not resolve it and restore that condition? It wasn't. Tabitha being dead, she's gone. Was that problem too great for the gospel to reach her and restore her condition? Listen, with the things that God has shown his ability to do, he is able to do those things. And in verse 20, 28, where it says, he causes all things to work together for good, that's not just the really big things. There's also no pebble too small that it cannot be an aid to our relationship with God. Every inconvenience, every obstacle, no matter how big, no matter how small, God has the power to use those things to only further restore our relationship with him, to draw us nearer to him, to increase our dependence on him, and the encouragement that we gain when we see him at work resolving any problem or any obstacle and helping us to overwhelmingly conquer, as it says in verse 37. Everything in the gospel is centered on this. Do people need to hear that? Do people need to see that? In Acts, what we see is the power of the gospel was being made very clear to people who were hearing about it, right? And I mentioned this with uh, Simon in Samaria, Simon the Magician. 
that I think one of the critical aspects of miracles in the first century was not only did it jumpstart the spread of the gospel, it showed a clear distinction between Christianity and the Jewish religion that was still in force in that day. That there was, again, a power to restore that was with Christianity, that was no longer with Judaism. That there was an ability that Jesus had and was continuing to share that was no longer with Judaism. But with Christianity, those things were very present, very powerful, and very relevant to each person who believes. And I think this affects our view of obedience. 1 John chapter 5, 3 and 4 says, And this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and that his commandments are not burdensome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith in these things that completely changes our view of instructions that seem very difficult, that seem like they require a deal of sacrifice or self-denial that maybe for us is incredibly inconvenient and maybe it's very emotionally taxing and can seem like serving God the way that he calls us to, we can easily view it like he's adding burdens into our lives where maybe we already feel overburdened in the first place. And I would argue that if we see God that way and his instructions that way, it's ultimately an issue with our faith, not with his instructions. Because everything he says, if we see it as being restoring, that no matter what I've got to give up, no matter what it costs, when I obey God's instruction, he intends that to further heal me, restore me, and cause me to conquer in ways that are transcendent of anything in the world. That he's bringing eternity into my life in ways that, again, are ultimately for my good and draw me closer to him. Not only do I think it changes our perspective of our, our, our obedience, I think it very practically changes our prayer life in relation to those things. I don't have these on the board, and really it's because there just wasn't really room for it. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul had just gotten done talking to the Thessalonians about his awareness of persecutions and difficulties that they've been enduring, things that are very difficult. So difficult, in fact, he was worried that it would destroy their faith. And he's been very encouraged hearing that it has not destroyed their faith, but they're continuing to serve the Lord faithfully. And here's his prayer in verse 9. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. And this is going to relate to our view toward God in obedience when obedience may be challenging and how seeing God in those things the right way gives us greater encouragement to approach those things. 1 Thessalonians 3.9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God in your account, as we night and day keep praying more earne most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then in chapter 4, he encourages them, even in their suffering, to continue to excel in love, which will be difficult and require more sacrifice and self-denial. But look in verses 11 through 13, where is the weight of responsibility placed here? In between their circumstantial suffering and the suffering that will further come from their continued obedience. Where is the weight of responsibility? Is it on them and how hard it will be for them? Or is it on God, his intentions, and his ability and his power? 
Notice in verse 12, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. And notice verse 13, who is going to establish them without blame and holiness? Which I think ultimately holiness is the true restoration. Becoming God-like entirely is the true restoration. Who is the one who is going to restore them in that way ultimately? And, And to what degree will he do that? Was it the Thessalonians by their ability? No, when we see it the right way in chapter four, really want to argue that Paul was telling them to do the impossible. In their circumstances, while suffering, while struggling so much, they're to excel even more in love and to abstain from all lust and continue growing and thriving. Impossible. It depends. Where are you putting your emphasis? God does tell us to do the impossible. And we have a decision where we are going to place the weight of responsibility. And when we place it on the Lord, it doesn't just encourage us, it drives us to prayer. Look at chapter 5. There's a very similar prayer emphasized in verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. How is Paul trying to help the Thessalonians view their relationship with God in relation to their obedience? Again, like we talked about, about the obedience of faith in our Romans class, not that these were just instructions to be taken and given as if written on tablets of stone, but that all of these things relate to God's work in them and their dependence on God, their view of God, their love for God, that God was given the greater weight of responsibility of ultimately who is at work, who is going to bring these, these, these things to pass, and having assurance that no matter what obstacle may stand in the way in the process, it's a guarantee. Verse 23, God can sanctify us entirely. One more in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think it's no accident that there's a consistency in these prayers of the Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And again, this relates to the same point on how God is viewed through obedience. Where's the weight of responsibility given? 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And notice this, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think if we saw God in these ways that we might have a healthier attitude, not only toward God's instructions that they're not burdensome, even when they cost us seemingly greatly, but also that we would be emboldened in obedience to seek it and to desire it even when we know it will cause us seemingly in the, tempor- in the temporal, greater suffering in the process. God is the one at work, and God is able to do these things. And it draws us closer to God and his power when we have good desires and the right faith. God is able to fulfill our desires even when we feel like we're not able to. God is able to fulfill the work of our faith with his power even when we feel like we are not able to. And again, getting back to Aeneas and Tabitha, what God was picturing in the healing of these two individuals, it illustrates these points in a way that I think would be directly responsible for people turning to the Lord. 
People around us need to see and to hear about the power of the gospel, not just hear about the instructions related to it. And with Tabitha and the way that she was serving, I would argue that she was abiding in eternal life already. And I want you to think about this. She passed on to her reward. Do you think she would be like really disappointed being brought back to life? Like, guys, I was there. I was secure. I was with the Lord. Why did you bring me back? Do you think she would have been disappointed? I want you to look at Philippians 1, 21 through 26. And I think we also need to have a healthier attitude about what eternal life is and what it's all about, that it ultimately is the realization of our investment and our, uh, our reward for investing and serving people. Look at Philippians 1, and I think we see this illustrated with Paul's attitude toward death, uh, at least in terms of his being with the Lord. Philippians 1:21. For to me, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Verse 23 really makes it sound like Paul really had a say in the matter. Like he could really make a decision. If he wanted to depart and be with the Lord, somehow, some way, he could do that if he chose to. If he wanted to stay and continue to serve, he could do that too. And it was, in a sense, seemingly up to him on, on some level. I don't know what level that was or what that means, but suffice it to say, verse 23 implies he had a choice. Think about this. If you were offered right now, you can go to heaven right now and be free of all the difficulties of life, gain your rest, and be with the Lord. How much would you have to wrestle with that or debate that? I mean, for me, it'd be like, it's no question. Let me go be with the Lord. And yet what Paul sees as service may be more necessary for continuing to serve the needs that exist now and continuing to build faith now. Would Tabitha have been disappointed that she's able to come back to life and continue to serve God's people, to continue investing in them and encouraging them? I think absolutely not. That she would have continued right on serving with joy because to serve and to love as Tabitha was, that is the realization of eternal life. I think she was brought to life because that's exactly what she was and what she was displaying to all those around her. That eternal life is the reward and realization of how invested we are in relationships, and especially that with God's people. In Romans 16, 1 and 2, this is where we'll end the lesson. It doesn't say Tabitha was having a lot of Bible studies with people. It doesn't say that she was some powerful teacher of the lost or really involved with spreading the gospel in her community. But she was fully given to Christ-like service. And that's our highest ambition. It's our highest calling. Look at Romans 16, 1 and 2, where we also have another woman mentioned in a very highly exalted way by the Apostle Paul. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of, need of you, 
For she herself has also been the helper of many and of myself as well. Listen. Our assemblies are important. And for men to lead at assemblies is not only important, but is what the New Testament commands. That public speakers, leaders in matters of this assembly, that that would be men. Is that the most important aspect of our service, though? No, it's a very unhealthy attitude when it seems like the person up front is the most important. The person most visible is the most important. The person most recognized is the most important. Do any of those things have consistency with the way that Jesus would teach his disciples? That it's really the first who will be last? That it's not the leader who is exalted, but instead it's the servant? Tabitha and Phoebe were servants. And the more we devote ourselves to being servants to personal needs, the healthier we will be as a church. Last illustration to conclude our lesson. I know, a, I know a brother in Alabama who moved to work with a church near Hartzell, Alabama. It's a big congregation. It's about 200 people. He hadn't worked with a church that big before, and so he had some kind of preconceived notions that with a big church comes you know, shallow connections and all of those kind of things. Too many people, you know, people wouldn't really be very close, not much like a family, that that's more of a small church thing. And he was amazed when he moved there just how united that church was and how much like a family that church was. So I asked him, well, why is that? And I expected, asking the question, he was going to say, it's the eldership. You know, that the elders are really doing a good job. They're shepherding people on individual. That's what I expected to be his answer. Without hesitation, he said, it's the women serving behind the scenes. That's why the church is as healthy as it is. And I was blown away by that. It's the women serving behind the scenes. That's why the church is as united as it is and as healthy as it is. Our assemblies are important, but individual service far transcends the things that we do here a couple times a week. When we learn to serve each other personally the way that Jesus trained his disciples to, that's when we will be a truly united and healthy congregation as we grow in those things. That's the lesson for this morning. I appreciate everybody's patience and attention. And I hope that Acts chapter 9 um, holds more value to you and you can see more practical lessons that can be pulled from these two individuals that I think are easy to overlook um, in relation to so many significant events around it in the book of Acts. If you're here this morning, we do reserve a time at the end of our assembly for needs to be made known, especially spiritual needs. If you're here this morning and need to put on Christ in baptism for salvation or need to bring forward uh, sin to confess or the need for help and encouragement, now is the time to bring those things forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.